Hello and welcome to episode 126 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is David. It hasn't changed. And with me are the NCP crew. Richard. I'm, I'm looking at you. <laughs> strangely <laughs> enough, my name hasn't changed either in the last two weeks. Well, we could legally change it. Well, I did want to change my name to Montgomery Zuma. So that people could call me Monty Zuma. But I thought, it's probably a bit weird. Who so, is this Homer that you speak of? <laughs> my name is Guy Incognito. Uh, look, I have changed my name. Please, God. Yes. Yes. No? No, he has not changed his name to Luke Skywalker. Oh, Luke, hey, now Beelzebub G. Hoffnagel. <laughs> I like it. Gee, Hoffnagel, I do quite like that. It sounds like, it sounds like um, what if Groucho Marx appeared in a Cthulhu story? <laughs> that is spot on. We should write that. <laughs> the Marx Brothers do Cthulhu. We write that. After this show, we write that down. Hey, Crystal. And I've changed my name to Luke from two episodes ago. Just to <laughs> sa- save any confusion. You haven't let it go. It's been two weeks. Change or has been stuck. You've been stuck with it. Yeah, but you've been calling me Luke ever since. <laughs> Only in my sleep. <laughs> Let's not expand on that thought. <laughs> Don't touch me there. Moving <laughs> <laughs> on. So, episode one twenty six. Uh, for this episode, we have two dust jackets. So it's our dust jacket episode. Uh, Yay! Uh, our first our... dust jacket of two thousand and fifteen. I oh, know that's pretty cool, isn't it? So, uh, uh, and we'll continue along with how we've been. It was very successful from twenty fourteen. It's been fifteen years. Can we start saying twenty fifteen now? So two thousand. <laughs> Um, it's more futuristic. I did say, didn't I say 2015? In the no, year no, 2050. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you've got to say it in that voice every time. What the, uh, this experience that I'm having these days is that a lot of the stuff, you know, that I loved from, you know, like the 70s and 80s, we're now actually reaching the point where, <laughs> you know, it's like, so, you know, you watch a film from the 80s, like, and in the year 2015, this happened. Well, I was like, well, well where's, where's our killer robot? We'll have hoverboards one. any minute now. Yeah, the obvious one is Back to the Future, so 2015. So where's our hoverboards? Where's Jaws 19? Exactly. <laughs> where's our flying cars? Where's our self-lacing shoes? We're all going to exactly start wearing right. our pants inside out. <laughs> just um, the pockets. Nike, Nothing, just the pockets. Nike did create a pair of um, self Lacing boots. They did, yeah. Uh, to coincide with uh, cool. the, the anniversary of Back to the Future too, so that's pretty cool. We'll see how it goes. I did like I did like that back in the day. Uh, Robert Zemeckis claimed that the whole birds were real. <laughs> they were they weren't released because people was the FDA was like, were scared that the kids were going to get hurt. <laughs> I, well, I believe in that story. I did, <laughs> see, safety. I did see uh, a YouTube clip of Buzz Aldrin on a hover recently created hoverboard not long ago, which was pretty cool. That is cool. I was. I, I went to the moon. What have you done? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, with Buzz, he'll punch you out. <laughs> I know, but he's a legend. Uh, so yeah, so um, as continuing on from uh, the format that we had from uh, 2014, so our two dash tickets. One will be uh, from our sci-fi list, um, and the other one will be uh, one of the sh- uh, picks from the crew. And uh, as it should be, the first crew pick is me. Well, no, that's just how it just turned out to be. But it, it, it all works out. The universe comes together. Favoritism. It is. Uh, and we also have a top five for this episode. And this, uh, this, uh, this one was uh, suggested by somebody. Who suggested this me. one? Was you? Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. It was uh, the top five adaptations that, that are actually better than their source material. Or equal to. Or so, equal to. You know, better or equal to yeah. their source material. Devoted yeah. a lot of thought time to this one. This was an awesome one. Mm. Yeah, yeah, this was, this was a hard one to sort of come up with. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so it was good. Uh, so, we'll uh, without further ado, let's move on to Dust Jacket number one, which is Richo and Luke covering The Rediscovery of Man by Cordwainer Smith. Mm-hmm. 
as David said, uh, my choice was uh, the rediscovery of Man by Cord. Is it Cord Wainer? Yeah, I think yeah. it's Cord Wainer. Cord Wainer Smith. Um, it is 190. Pretty sure it's pronounced Smith. Smith is pretty. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, it is 190 on the top 200 uh, list from Sci-Fi List. It was higher, wasn't it? Is it slipped down? Well, because this is an active list where people are continually voting. Scientologists have some more Battlefield Earths. So that's, <laughs> that's right. It it, according to the website, game. it has moved down three spaces <laughs> in recent times. The Rediscovery of Man was actually published in 1975. Mm. However, it is a collection of short stories. Um, uh, the short stories dating back, I think the earliest one is 1950. Yeah. The author himself actually died in 1967, so this collection came out uh, posthumously. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about the author, because he actually had a really fascinating life, but let's talk about the book first. Um, As I said, it's a series of short stories that covers literally thousands of years of human history. Um, Imagine something along the lines of, say, Foundation, um, but without... But with more sort of a thematic approach to things rather than the direct thread that Foundation has with the Harry Seldon predictions. It is similar in in um, in another aspect uh, to Foundation as well in that the Earth, in the earlier stories, the Earth is emerging from a dark age. As we emerge from that dark age, we start to see um, aspects of humanity uh, throughout the different stories. And as I said, through the... Is it the dark age or a new dark age? A new dark age. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, all the stories are set in the future. Nobody expects the Inquisition. That's right. All the stories are are set in the future. Um, Smith himself, certainly not in The Rediscovery of Man, doesn't actually give you um, exact years or anything like that. Um, In fact, there's a lot that he doesn't reveal. Um, about the world, it's there's a lot of topics that he uh, terms that he uses and um, aspects that he brings into the stories that um, he never really explains. But I, I kind of like that approach because the people in this world know what those things are. Hmm. And sometimes it works really well. It does like not yeah. explaining stuff. Yeah, but yeah. sometimes. I can't remember the name of the book now, but sometimes you need to have an index yeah. to explain some of this sort yeah. of stuff. Um, I'll, I'll give you a good example. There's a term that he uses in the in the very first story in this collection, um, which is called Scanners Live in Vain, which um, Luke is actually going to talk a little bit in, in more detail about, but he uses a term called cranching. There's no real explanation for what cranching actually is, but it's something that, these, that the main character does to himself. And, and others others in his situation do it as well. He doesn't really explain in detail what it is, but he presents enough information for you to start to piece together yourself what cranching is. Yeah. Um, now, well, the, to alleviate my quite disgusting mind, <laughs> what, what is cranching? Cranching uh, is effectively um, the main character, Martel. Why don't I talk about Scanners in Vain then? Yeah, and, all right, we'll, we'll start with that then, and um, that'll give you an idea of the, bef- the setup for the early stages of the book as well. Before I, before I just do quickly to sort of set up the thematic um, nature of the book, The Rediscovery Man is actually all about humanity actually trying to rediscover it, the thing, the very the very foundations that make it human. Yeah. Um, in the most simplest um, terms possible. Because we've evolved or something. More because um, the instrumentality, which is what which is the overriding organization that's at the heart of this um has in an attempt to get us out of the dark age um done everything for us if that makes sense it has they've they've basically taken control of the galaxy Mm. the universe um 
And they're, they're just an elite group of people. They're mm. sort of mm. basically imagine um, the nobility mm. in, in the old days. Um, there is an, an actual galactic empire as well, but pretty much the instrumentality controls the galactic empire mm. as well. And, and humanity has um, gone to the point where it's become quite decadent, decadent and self-indulgent because they've got nothing, we've got nothing but pleasure mm. um, to look forward to all the work is generally done for us. Um, By who? Under people. Under people. Awesome. The under people are basically <laughs> animals that have been, like in a Dr. Moreau style, they are animals that have been basically transformed into humanoids, mm. right, and given intelligence, but they're only given enough to do all the hard work for us. Brief, yeah. Um, yeah. This is just to give you a brief idea before Luke goes on. This is the kind of wacky ideas that are in this book. This I'm, is all I, big ideas all over the place. I'm thinking Bob Fossil's mutants. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it's um, yeah. um, humans live to be well, four hundred years old in the early stages of the book. But as you go through the stories, it starts to get to be more like a thousand years old. So once you've cranked a lot, you you. Well, no, no, no. Right. It's all because of this drug called uh. Strum, which is found on basically new new Australia. Old, no, old, old North Australia. Old North Australia. Australia. Yeah, we we so it's basically, basically cane toad. Mm. Um, it actually grows <laughs> on sheep. Awesome, but um, isn't yeah. it actually a thing that grows on a sheep that's actually quite good for us? Yeah, lanolin. Yeah, and this is the thing. Imagine oh, the oil from the sheep. Yeah. yeah, now imagine, imagine if that. <laughs> I didn't think it was a. It was a. Fun imagine thing, if that <laughs> kept people alive, yeah. uh, for a thousand years, but you constantly had to get get it every 60 years or so that's making why. Australia the most the richest and most powerful place was in the he universe. Australian? no right. he wasn't but he did visit Australia what a legend and we, need, we do need to talk a bit about his life because his life is actually as interesting as the book itself um, mm. but yeah so imagine imagine yeah human, humans are being humans are basically lazy all the work is done for them by animals um, space travel involves people being actually surgically altered um, and sort of melded with machinery. Um, or pilots are actually linked directly into ships through their nervous system. So there's kind of a bit of a um, sort of pre-cyberpunk cyberpunkness about it as well. So you want to say so you want to go through sort of like the themes of it back to what Luke was saying. Yeah, let's, let's bring so it back to like Luke. go through the go through the stories and and mm. sort of the general sort of theme and, and well, tell me what this cranking business is. And okay, <laughs> cranching, cranching. Okay, so Cranston, gonna, Cranston should be could be Cranston. Because <laughs> he's awesome. <laughs> True. Um, okay, the opening story is Scanners Live in Vain, and it was the first first story published in 1950. It was the first one that um, uh, started to introduce really what the ideas of the instrumentality were about. I'll talk more about that in a sec. Scanners Live in Vain is centers on the, the story of Martel, um, who was both a scanner and a Haberman. A scanner is um, a member of this sort of piloting guild. Um, that exists to help transport people um, from one planet to the other, but the rigors of um, actual piloting are quite intense. Um, so that you know, it they are they are subject to losing life um, because of that. A lot of them um, become Habermen, which are effectively dead men, not mm. quite zombies because they are not mindless, but um, they actually do lose um, basic body functions like heart and um, body heat and things like that. Um, as a result, they actually lose a lot of the very thing, the very foundations that make them human. So, touch, taste. Um, yeah. Sorry. So, why is it so bad? So, why is it so hard? To, do they basically propel themselves through space? Pretty much. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Martel, but Martel is a person who does miss being human, and the cranching is in fact a drug um, that he takes or is um, prepared for to help him feel sensation again. 
The girls not too far off from what I was thinking. Mm, no, yeah. not too far off. And and all, all of the all of the Habermen are allowed to take this drug when they're not on duty, mm, okay. like when they're back on their home planets. Mm. Um, but they're only sort of it only gives you an, an experience of an hour or two at a time mm. of actual yeah of actual sensation. However, one of the things that he that his guild discovers is that there is a person out there who can actually cure dead people of their death. Yeah. Restore them to humanity. Restore them to humanity. This causes much consternation with his guilt because um, they believe that it will that if that gets taken away from them, there is no need for scanners anymore. You'll just have other people becoming pilots, and so therefore the power um, and the position they hold in the instrumentality will in fact be taken away from them. Martel, however, on the other hand, believes that by doing this, he will actually be allowed to have sensation again and be allowed to have uh, more intimate. Um, contact with his wife, um, so he in fact goes out to it in an attempt to stop the um, stop the assassin from killing this um, this scientist. Cool. The thing that I love about this story really is the humanity at the heart of it. You know, this is a man who actually truly doesn't like the situation that he's in and believes that there is something better, not just for himself, but for the people um, in the guild. That you know, that by actually taking the process, they have in fact lost something that's quite fundamental. And they are merely just existing, fighting on for pe- holding on to power, which means ultimately nothing. So if, if it means ultimately nothing, why hold on to it? Um, and so his journey is one of trying to actually reconnect um, in, a, in a very physical way with um, his humanity, which I really did like. I cared a lot for Martel, and one of the nice things was it, about it was that in, even though there's an action component, it's not a very action-driven, action-driven story. Um, the other interesting thing was seeing the way that the guild, the, the Scanners Guild themselves, actually um, conduct themselves. Cool. This is by no means the best story in the novel, but as an opening salvo, um, I think it's very strong and, get, and introduces the key theme of the book, which is needing to read a, for any all the stuff that's going on in the universe to matter. Um, you naturally need to reconnect with your with your humanity on some fundamental level, otherwise it's all pointless. And every really every main character in each of the stories in this volume goes through some kind of both actually both physical and I guess spiritual and emotional mm. transformation as well um, because as Luke said that is the key theme so just just to give a brief rundown of, of some of the key stories um, the story after Scanners Live in Vain is called the Lady Who Who Sailed the Soul which sort of shows you um, the next stage of um, space travel and piloting. It's a love story about two pilots. Um, you have the crime and glory of Commander Susdal, which is one of my personal favourites for just crazy big ideas. Yep. Who is basically Commander Susdal goes out exploring and um, discovers a planet um, that was settled by humanity, but all the women basically lost the ability to breed and effectively died out. So the men had to adapt, like actually alter themselves to be able to carry children. Um, and in doing so, they also become a very tribal race. And um, he encounters them for the first time, um, you know, since they were effectively a lost tribe of humanity. But he has a, he carries on his ship samples of um, animal, D- animal DNA and a effectively like a time machine device. So when he gets in trouble, has to develop a weapon to defend himself. And what he develops is one of the most brilliantly awesome ideas I've ever seen in a story. Um, but 
part of what he develops then leads through um, into later stories where you start to learn a lot more about the Undermen and the creation of the Undermen um, and the use of animals in throughout the the thousands of years that the book covers and how they evolve, which leads to my personal favourite story in the book, which is called The Dead Lady of Clown Town. Um, <laughs> yeah, the there, are, there are some really bizarre titles uh, for these stories. Funnily enough, not, not actually created by Cordwain Smith, they were created by Frederick Pohl. Yeah, see, that doesn't surprise yeah, me at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so The Dead Lady of Clown Town, which um, is effectively a Joan of Arc metaphor story, mm. but it deals with... Um, the Undermen and the discovery of the Undermen that they are actually living beings and should be given the same rights and classifications that actual, what are called real humans in the book, are given because they are very much an underclass with no rights at all. So, oh. um, and I Was won't that go. The final story? No, oh, okay. no, the final story is actually a planet named Sheol, which is the story about prisoners who are basically gotcha. um, yep. create body parts, but um. I won't go into detail about all of the stories. Um, I will cool. say that almost all of them were, I thought, were excellent. Mm. One called Under Old Earth, which is, I think, probably the weakest story because it has the weakest characters. But um, what you find with this book, more than anything else, is, first of all, it is full of just crazy ideas. I've, I've never seen a future developed quite like what Cordway to Swift develops. Mm. Like he just throws all kinds of amazing ideas into these short stories. Um, but never loses sight in any of the stories of the fact that what, what, that these are strong character stories and that the transformation of the characters and as the title says, the rediscovery of man, which is really the rediscovery of their connection to humanity and their understanding of what humanity actually is, is what lies at the core of the book. No, I fully yeah. agree with that. And yeah, to give a little bit of background on Corbin Smith, he's a, it's a pseudonym for a man called um, Dr. Paul Leinbarger, Leinbarger, however you choose to pronounce it, who was actually a diplomat for the American embassy um, and actually worked with military intelligence, American military intelligence for a period during the Second World War. Um, his father was a financial advisor to the Chinese prime minister who also became Paul Leinbarger's mm-hmm. godfather. You know, a lot of the sense of culture that's really strong in the story comes a lot from the cultures that he himself was exposed to, but also then went and pursued in line in line of his work as um, um, an, a, an ambassador for um, America back in the 40s and the 50s, um, and cool. all of the work that he did with the cultural attaché as well. Um, but it, he um, he hides behind a pseudonym because he has he had an, uh, a fear of meeting his general public based on the fact that he actually had written uh, other non-science fiction work under the name Felix C. Forrest. Um, but he actually met his audience um, and that he felt that when he met his audience, the spontaneity of his work, which is quite apparent in The Rediscovery of Man, um, was actually lessened. So it took him a while to republish again. When he did start republishing, um, was very, very reluctant to go to conventions, even to meet other writers and editors in the field, because he didn't want the nature of his work to be um, corrupted. And strangely enough, um, possibly his most famous text, other than maybe this, but who knows, but his most famous book is actually called Psychological Warfare, which was written in 1948 and is actually like a non-fiction textbook on psychological warfare and actually became the standard for that style of warfare for basically decades after. 
Wow. Yeah, so this guy lived a really fascinating life, and I I think that comes across in in this book as well. Mm. And um, the stories in this book, the other great thing about them is they're they're often written in different styles. Um, You know, as I said, one is a romance story. There are spy elements in some books. There there is straight science fiction in other books. Mm. I mean, there's a real mix in here, but... At the same time, it all feels like the work of one author. Mm. Um, I have always been a big fan of Cordwain Smith um, because of the unusualness of his his stories, um, the the big ideas in the world, plus also, but never losing sight of character. Mm. Character's mm. always been one of my big things, and the characters, um, with the exception of Underworld Earth, the characters are always present and forefront in what's going on. I cannot recommend him enough. I give the book four Luke's. I actually picked up this book on Luke's recommendation. And, yeah, I was very much impressed. As I said a couple of episodes ago, it was almost a contender for Book of the Year for me. But, you know, it's a 2015 review, so it might uh, hold off (laughs) until the the end of this year. Um, But I gave this four and a half Luke's. Wow. Sounds like a must-read. Cool, let's move on to uh, Crystal and myself. Uh, So, like I said, it was my turn to pick. And uh, I wanted to pick something that I thought uh, Crystal might also be into as well I mean instead of picking you know just like a Gemmel book or something (laughs) you know let's face it which is probably what it was going to be let's be honest Uh, so uh, I went with a I thought I'd go with the Jack Reacher novel Uh, uh, Luke and I have discussed Jack Reacher novels in the past we're fans Um, and so it's it's uh, only this period of Jack Reacher yeah so they're they're written by uh, the author Lee Child and um it is basically his moneymaker. <laughs> he's, he's what's paying the bills. Uh, so Jack Reacher, uh, we've, we've mentioned him many, many times in the past, especially considering when we reviewed the film. Yeah, so when you said one shot, I went, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the book, the, the, the Jack Reacher book that I chose is actually not the best one. Um, it's, it's, but I, the, I, chose, I chose one shot because it's the one that's, that was based on the film, and so I knew that yeah. you know Crystal had seen it and that we reviewed it and, and that it would make a bit more sense. I thought it'd be, it's, a, it's a good introduction to the character, if not necessarily the best of the actual novels themselves. Yeah, I have to say I was pleasantly surprised that it is better than the film. <laughs> well, that won't be hard because it feels pretty ordinary. Uh, so, yes, I mean, it's, it's, it, does, it does also narrow, it's a, a sort, of, sort of nail home the fact that uh, Tom Cruise is, is miscast um, in I, terms of physical appearance. Yeah, I, I think he played the character rather well. He's just mm. too small. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that was, And that, that, was, that was actually what was quite jarring about the film i suppose is i mean it's, is that he's just even though he does does he just doesn't look right and a big part of the story he's still a good actor. deals with jack's size so yeah even if they'd done some sort of peter jackson trick with the height <laughs> that, that might have worked but... that would have been awesome well they do it a couple of times i mean Ros- rosalind pike uh, is much taller <laughs> and, you know, so, and they, they managed they managed to be you know of equal height in, in some shots doing so. the old Ellen Ladd trick yeah. Yeah, yeah so one shot one shot deals with a uh, seemingly random sh- uh, sniper shooting of a bunch of people uh, in in public and uh, the killer the killer is found ridiculously fast um, and uh, he Before mysteriously the, the first chapter yeah and uh, he mysteriously invokes the name Jack Reacher so you get Jack Reacher for me now, it's kind of it's kind of hard to reveal because it's the film and, and is, 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 is in my mind in the book and the book and the film actually are quite different in some ways like there's a lot of a lot of the book that's cut out uh, and mm. was actually changed for the film well the film became more of a thriller action thriller and yeah, the yeah so more of a, a, mystery. a mystery a mystery yeah that's yeah. right the book is, is more of a mystery so 
Because see, the, well, the one thing that the the film found really hard to do was that in the book, who the killer is is a mystery. Mm. Whereas in the film, you find out within the first five minutes. Yeah. Right, it's, so, it's the end of Act it's, One. Yeah, so and it's kind of, it was kind of hard to it's kind of hard to get around that really because mm. I mean it's, it's so mm. so yeah so in 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 the film. I guess that's the main difference, I suppose. Is, is, is it's, a, it's a mystery in the book, and in the film, you find out straight away. The film's a thriller, really. Um, it's more of an action action. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, I've basically just reiterated what you just said. Yeah, I apologise yeah. for that. That's right. Um, anyway, so with all Jack Reacher novels, um, it's it is like, like Crystal said, is very heavily emphasised on on who Jack Reacher himself is mm. as a person, and he's just he's just one of those sort of characters that you find in in, in literary fiction. He, he's so real. Um, that he's just he's just amazing. I mean, there's, everything has been everything's been covered of, uh, of of this guy. So everything from and there's still things that you still learn as each book comes out and it's a new book every year. So mm-hmm. I mean, there's still things that you learn. But he's just he's a very well rounded and realistic character. And uh, the fact that Chris Hemsworth didn't pay him, pay, play him on the screen is really irritating. Well, see, see, Chris <laughs> would have been fine physically, but I think mm-hmm. he's too young. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So uh, Jack Reacher novels um, are, are basically, yeah, so like I said, they emphasize Jack Reacher as, as a character himself and, and the whole, the, the, the whole you know, all the women want him and all the men want to be like him and, you know, all that sort of business, which they actually do have a scene in the film, which I thought was quite funny, where he's in the montage where he's buying clothes and all the women are like, oh, my God. Uh, every time he walks past, which, Captain Kirk which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> I mean, so that was the best they could do, really. Uh, so um, the, I guess... And the reason I like these like these books is because I, I mean I like you know the sort of uh, you know the, the action mystery thriller type stuff you know it's it's, it's a it's, page turner it's a page turner I mean they they they're called airport novels for a reason and you know <laughs> but they're not bad I actually quite I quite enjoy them I've I've read them all um, and uh, one of the, some of the things that I really like about them is um, Jack Reacher himself as a character which I think he's brilliant um, and the the situations that he finds himself in don't seem too over the top. Like I say, I mean, they actually do seem quite plausible. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a murder she wrote sort of situation where he always seems to be involved in something. Mm. <laughs> so it's like, wherever he goes, something is Hopefully happening. Hopefully he doesn't show up where Jessica <laughs> yeah. Fletcher is. Yeah, exactly. If they haven't met, they haven't met up in person, the whole world's in trouble. In midsummer. <laughs> if they haven't met up in person, the whole world's in trouble, but he's going to be the one to get he'd, them He'll be the one to figure it out. Exactly. So it's that I sort want of, him on my side, not Jessica Fletcher. But that's that's the sort of... I mean, obviously that's what's going to happen, because mm. you know, otherwise you don't have a story. And they're not, you're not going to have a novel based on what he just had, you know, what he did yesterday for no reason we just see a movie. Um, the new so, Jack Reacher novel Jack Reacher does the dishes <laughs> just exactly. a yeah, movie where nothing happens for two hours um, but uh, but there are a couple of negatives as well I mean, um, as, I mean they are quite enjoyable but there are some negatives and uh, I'll cross the crystal for those oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have to bear down on the book um, no I wasn't worrying the room about what the negatives are um, well I only have a, cu- a couple of criticisms of the book and one of them is I found that chapters are bit long um i like to i like to take a break from a book at the end of a chapter mm. and um sometimes i found that a bit long. they could have been broken up a little bit more i don't think you need to break the writing up a little bit more just end the you know mm. chapter um and my other criticism i don't know if i can say this without being a spoiler but um and i'm not sure it's because i've, I've seen the movie first but they don't think to look at the witnesses until might not the witnesses the victims until Quite late in the book, where yeah. I was sort of thinking, quite much earlier on. That's your uh, first point yeah, of call. That's why, why, why? You, perhaps you should, if you can't figure out, perhaps you should be focusing on the on the victims. I guess because 
they're still assuming it's a random shooting, but then Jack starts getting an inkling it's, it's not. So why doesn't he then look at the victims? Yeah, I'm totally with you. To perhaps mm. discover why not. Yeah. Yeah. The, the film does yeah. that a, earlier, it does a, if I remember yeah, correctly. So yeah. maybe it's still that's not early enough. Film. Yeah. But I, um, on, the, on the whole, I, I did enjoy this book much more than the film because it does dig a bit deeper into the mystery aspect of it. The film's really just... Action, action, look how good Jack Reacher is. Mm. Um, the book was a more character-driven, more plot-driven. I guess the only, only other negative would be, in. I, I know this is, is weird because I, I, I normally quite like it, but I just think it's sometimes over-described. Like this, I mean, there's the, I think I think Lee Child goes yes. to a lot of effort to make sure that these things are as accurate as they possibly can be. Yeah. Um, and That's that, that, that amazes you. The amount of research must be unbelievable. But sometimes I think it just goes just a little overboard. That's why I was a little shocked when you said Luke was a fan because the, the, the opening chapter describing coming into the town, every little turn and corner, piece of concrete, everything was described. But then I'm thinking, well, Luke's big thing's really too much exposition. He never right. said too much descriptions of problems. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's in needing to see that that's that's you know setting things up and building the world. Whereas well, I don't like it when I get people actually telling me stuff. That I can't already work out. Well, I've got, I've got over explaining. I've got two examples for you. The bit at the start where the sniper's setting up mm-hmm. and ready to go, right? Brent. Yep. Right. It's, it's all excellently done. That's exactly how it should be done. All right. And but then you've got the bit where he he borrow he, he grabs the car. The borrow, he goes off to to check out the ice dealer guy, the the ringleader of the fight yep. sequence, right? And that sequence there, like his journey to that guy's to the countryside. Theater, is ridiculous. Yeah. Like all of that should be cut, and so that's that's what I mean. Sort of with the sort of description. Sometimes it's brilliant, and it just it just blows me away. Just the amount of research, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's like uh, you just, I don't, you I don't, don't mind it. the journey description, but I, I, it's, it's the one at the start that bothered me a little bit. I didn't need to know every bit of concrete and turn and yeah, and and how are the over, I suppose how the overpasses worked came into play later. So that was kind of that kind I guess of worked. So. Yeah. So yeah, so like I said, it's not the, it's not the best uh, Jack Reacher novel. Um, it is, uh, it's not my favourite one, but it is a, a really good introduction to the character. Um, so I do, I do recommend it. Uh, is I, I actually recommend all of them. I, I mean, there's there's some that are better than others. Um, what's your what's your favourite? My favourite is things? the first. My favourite time um, is Killing for the first one. Yeah, Killing no, that's flawed too because there's got one hell of a coincidence. Yeah, um, that occurs early on, and if you can get past that coincidence, fabulous. Um, you know, great tight little mystery. You know, yeah. a great introduction to the character. I like Lincoln Kills. Well. Well. I like the 61 hours as well. I personally, after one shot, I think the entire series takes a bit of a dive. Yeah, fair enough. And I haven't actually read the last two. Oh, okay, fair enough. Cool. But, uh, yeah, so overall, though, I, I give this... Um, uh, I mean, they're all very middle of the road, but enjoyable middle of the road, so I'll give it a uh, 3 out of 5. I will also give it a 3 out of 5, but I wouldn't call it middle of the road. I, 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 I don't base my opinion on novels on how literary they are and how, you know, it kept me turning pages and it kept me interested and that was the main thing, I think. Uh, it was just an enjoyable... So it did, it, it did keep you interested? Yeah. I'm pleased. Yeah. yeah, so three for me. That's awesome. Cool. All right, so let's move on to our top five. For this top five, we'll be talking about our top five adaptations that are better or equal to their source material. We're going to start off with Crystal. Okay, I'm going to go from five to one. 
um, actually six to one because when I was doing research on this topic, because I found it hard to come up with stuff on the top of my head, so I dived into the internet, um, feet first, <laughs> <laughs> and one of the ones that kept coming on people's lists was One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, that the um, the movie was actually better than the book, and uh, I, I quite disagree with that. I, I don't think the movie was any better than the book, but I don't think the mo- book was any better than the movie either. I think they're two different entities, and I think they're both equally as good. Okay, fair. Um, uh, to my number five, I, I'm i giving it to Sherlock, the TV series. Not to say it's better... It's the same again. It's not to say that it's better than the origin, original Arthur Conan Doyle books and stories... But it's equally as good, and it's a different entity as well. It's mm. different media. Um, it is actually a, quite a fascinating show, brilliantly put together. And it's probably one of the best adaptations I've seen of Sherlock Holmes. Um, number four, oh. Superman the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually have read a few Superman comics in my time. Um, Your years on the The, the movie's going to blow me away every time. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Number three on my list is MASH, the TV series. I do actually own the book somewhere, and I think I started to read it once, but I, I don't recall ever get through it. But um, I have seen the movie, and uh, MASH, the TV series, blows the movie away. So uh, I would call that an adaptation that's better than the source material. Mm-hmm. Number two on my list, In the Name of the Rose. Um, I read the book. Uh, it does require a lot of time and patience, the book. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, and it, it's quite good. Uh, it does assume that you can speak Latin. <laughs> um, uh, I, I found the movie much... I mean, the book I quite liked, but I found the movie much more enjoyable, and I think it's the first time I've seen... It was the first time I'd seen Sean Connery in a movie where I really liked Sean Connery. It really stood out for me. And my number one, which is probably going to be on a number of other lists, is Blade Runner. The book... Uh, I would call it loosely based on the book Two Androids Dream of Electric Sheep won't go into great detail because we devoted a whole episode to it yes. um, two episodes um, but uh, yeah, this is this is why I, I didn't even have to research this I just remembered this one <laughs> this, mo- this movie far far outshines its source material um, yeah, and that would be cool. my number list. one also next up we've got Richo I actually found this easier than I thought it would be cool so much so that I even have honourable mentions if need be. Wow. And I didn't include Blade Runner. Because like everybody else, that was going to be pretty high on my <laughs> list. And then I thought, no, everyone else will do Blade Runner. So. Yeah, I'd appreciate to say it's on everybody's list. Yeah. So, my list. Um, at number five, I have Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Cool. Because when I first saw the movie, I thought it was one of the worst movies I'd ever experienced. Except for Paul Rubin's character's death scene, which is <laughs> hilarious. But, I mean, I, I despised the movie so much yeah. that I actually didn't watch the TV show for several years. Like, it wasn't until, um, I think, the th- about midway through the third season, just because people were telling me that the show was really good. Um, that I actually got around to to watching it, and um, I watched one of those um, marathons that Foxtel used to do of the second season, and went, you know what, this is actually good, and then became a fan of the show from that point on. So yeah, oh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that was a good one. Is my number five. My number four is um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, we read the book and reviewed it a little while back um, on Dust Jacket, and I actually didn't mind the book; it wasn't bad. However. Both the original 50s movie 
and the absolutely awesome 70s technically sequel, uh, just two of my absolute favourite movies and absolutely love them. And um, so in that regard, I found the book a little bit disappointing. Yeah. Um, even though I did enjoy it. So, um, so Invasion of the Body Snatchers, both of those versions are not that awful 90s film they made because that was pretty bad. Yeah, but she was hot. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it was. You can't use that as a tagline for anything that you say. Oh, the 90s one was bad, but she was hot. Yeah. <laughs> that, seems, that seems to be your... Uh, what's, your... What's her name? What was her name? Gabrielle Anwar or something? Gabrielle Anwar, yeah. 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 Um, Maybe not. Yeah. That was called the Body Snatcher, wasn't it? And I, think, I think it was just body called, snatchers. I think it was just called Body Snatchers. Body Snatchers. Or was it Body Snatchers? The Invasion Continues. Or something <laughs> so that was like the second that. one. Oh, was it? There was another one. one. Right. <laughs> Either way, those are not what I'm talking <laughs> yeah, about they're, here. They're I'm pretty, talking about the classic, the two classic films. Yeah. Um, uh, my number three is Jurassic Park. Right. Because that book is just awful. Really? It is. It I don't is, mind it. I've got it on my shelf. I just found it to be like really bad airport. Literature. Yeah, fair enough. Like it was really trashy and superficial, and um, I don't know. Like, and and it has a completely different ending that I thought was really cheap, as opposed to the film. Which, um, whilst I admit the film's probably a little bit dated now, um, obviously in its special effects, but at the time, my no, God, no, it's not too. A little bit. You've got to check out the blue. Have you checked out the Blu-ray? What you mean, where they've upgraded all the special effects? <laughs> no, just even the T-Rex, yeah. they haven't touched the T-Rex. Yeah, he just he looks magnificent. Yeah. But um, yeah, I actually I loved Jurassic Park, the film, mm. but not not a big fan of the book. Yeah. Um, cool. However, worse than that, and this one might cause a bit of controversy. My number two vote is Interview with the Vampire, <laughs> which is just it's, it's, why would that cause controversy? Because I know, for some bizarre reason, a lot of people are fans of uh, Anne Rice's books. But um, I honestly found them to just be angsty, gothy, wannabe, soppy, romancy crap. Um, in fact, the only, thing, the only thing that makes uh, the books look good, in my opinion, is the fact that Stephanie Meyer came along and wrote even worse versions <laughs> of those stories. Um, but Neil Jordan's movie, um, I think, does a fantastic job of really capturing... Um, just a beautiful mood and atmosphere. Mm. It um, it brings New Orleans alive in a really incredible way, um, and is surprising in that Tom Cruise I actually thought was a very good Lestat, and um, but that was a big shock to everybody at the time. And yeah. um, I, I found that the movie well and truly transcended its source material. Um, that's fair enough. But I don't think is. that's controversy at all. I mean, I, I, I like the book. I mean, you keep yeah. looking over at my bookshelf. Where it's sitting, yes, I know. It is sitting there on the shelf staring at me right now, which is Do you notice that I've only got the first three? Because I think everything else after that is trash. Yeah, no, fair enough. And even three is actually not that good. But actually, I agree. I think the film transcends the material. However... I'm not looking at you at all. I'm looking through you. My number one vote so completely transcends the source material that um, it, it, there was just no other choice for this list, and uh, that is Jaws. Uh-huh. I consider Jaws to be one of the greatest movies ever made. It is literally a brilliant film, whereas the book... The book makes Jurassic Park look like a it's masterpiece by comparison. Come on. It is... It it's is, bad. It's bad. It I've is one the, of the... I've, I've not seen... I've not read the book, but I've heard... That. I've got the book. You can borrow it if you want. It's... it's I don't. It's, don't. don't, don't, don't do not I, I've got plenty to read. Thank you. Um, <laughs> no. Um, Jaws... Yeah, as I said, the film, literally brilliant. One of my favourite movies of all time. I gotcha. The book is so bad as to be practically unreadable. <laughs> it is... It is... 
the tr- yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. It is the trashiest <laughs> of the trash. If it, if it would be the trashiest of the trash, actually, if it wasn't for something like Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> but there's there's just nothing to this book at all. Absolutely right. nothing. Whereas right. the film, brilliant. Awesome. Uh, just quickly, I wanted to throw in a couple of honourable mentions. Um, the first one is Soylent Green. Nice. Um, make Room, Make Room. I actually thought it was a, was a good book, um, and I reviewed it as such. Um, but it doesn't quite have the twists and turns that make Soylent Green stand out. It doesn't as a come, isn't it? So yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, the second one, I haven't actually really read the whole book or anything, but um, the second one would be um, Planet of the Apes and Monkey Planet, yeah. the book it's based on. Uh, the film is, you know, as we've discussed many times on the show, Genius. Masterpiece, absolute yeah. genius, and and Rod Serling and Co have managed to get the heart of the story out there, but make it better. Yeah, substantially. The book's better. terrible, I've read yeah. it. And my third one, which is a slightly weird one, I've not read it. Yeah. I was, the point I was going to make was that I don't I believe the book doesn't have the iconic intellectual and green. Yeah. The book doesn't have the iconic moment, the one that everyone. No, remembers. of course, yeah. no, it doesn't. And and those iconic moments, I think, really sum up everything that is in those stories, and yeah. that's, that's what makes them key. Uh, the third one is a slightly weird one because it's actually only one section of a film. And that's um, the original Sin City movie, um, but specifically the Big Fat Kill story. I actually thought that think that's actually probably the weakest of the Sin City comics, and I wasn't really a fan. I thought it dragged on for much longer than it needed to in yeah. comic book form. However, the film has compacted that down brilliantly, and that's um, cool. the stories around it are fantastic in both comic form and in the film as well. But that specific section, I thought, was just so much better than the comic. Those, those are my honourable mentions. Fair enough. Um, like I said at the start, I, I found this actually quite hard. Um, this, I, I thought it was a very enjoyable top five uh, idea. Um, and I wanted to pick ones that were not necessarily transcended the source material, but sort of, but, but the, the, the ones that I sort of I enjoyed more than the source material. Yeah. So not to yeah. say that the source material was terrible, hmm. but... I just prefer the, the you know the adaptation version of it. So I mean, so I do, so I do, for that reason, I don't have LA Confidential, Fight Club, and The Princess Bride on the list because I think they're both both entities are just mm-hmm. as enjoyable as each other. You mm-hmm. know what I mean, so my top five from five to one is Psycho, um, the film. It's, it's magnificent, and you know Hitchcock at his at his mm-hmm. one of his greatest, and uh, the book is actually kind of. Kind of boring, mm. yeah. Um, the sources are based on um, uh, number four, Blade Runner. <laughs> mentioned all before. We'll move on. The Lord of the Rings, <laughs> mainly because I mean, like, like you know, let's just get it. the the books are you know the brilliance that they are. Let's mm. be honest, right? Mm. But some parts of it just so irritate me. <laughs> I just, I just, I just they're the bits that I always skip, and I just you know I just so, kind so of, were they the bits that were cut out of the film? <laughs> they're all the bits that were yeah. cut from the film are the bits that I skip in the book. So I just I just think the Lord of the Rings film project I think is diluted a bit now with the Hobbit films, but I think the Lord of the Rings project as it stands is a crowning achievement of just how adaptations should be done. It's mm. like respectful but not slavish yeah. to the source, and I just you know or slavish. Whatever, but you know, you know what I'm trying to say. Uh, at two, I had Jaws. <laughs> so all that defence of uh, the book. No, no, I must say uh, the book is terrible. <laughs> but it's not. You just said it was. You know, uh, your only comparison was Fifty Shades of Grey. It's not that bad. <laughs> well, no, I could have thrown the Da Vinci Code in as well. So I mean, the, I, for one thing, I will say that the the film, the book, does do better than the film, and just this one bit. <laughs> yeah, the film is genius. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Um, is that it deals with uh, Brody's wife's affair with, you know, yeah. uh, you know Matt Hooper, Matt Hooper a, a little bit, you know, mm. 
It's everything else. <laughs> everything else. But, okay, but, but just on that, doesn't because that's not in the film at well, all. It doesn't that actually take it away from what's actually. I'm not. I haven't read the book. So I can't comment. Well, it's, it's sort of it's a, sort of a, a divergent path, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. But it actually, but it adds a little extra nuance to the end. Anyway, and number one, uh, I don't think is is a uh, surprise to anybody. Is Die Hard. Um, the book yeah. is a piece of rubbish. <laughs> it's just rubbish from start to finish, and uh, I mean, talking about you know airport novels, it's it's just horrible, horrible stuff. Uh, and the and the film is probably my second favorite film of all time. And it it basically takes the central idea, which is why why I think great adaptations work, where it takes the central idea mm. and then builds upon it and makes it good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the only honorable the only honorable mention I've got uh, was Buffy. Which is why okay. I, was, I was quite excited. Was nice. like, we smile on the face when you said it. Because yeah. you're, you're right. I mean, other than that poor Ruben Destiny, the film's just rubbish. Yeah, total rubbish. <laughs> and, the, and the show is, you know, as everybody knows, one of my favourite shows ever. So mm. it's good. That's me. Luke. Um, okay. The reason why I suggested this, just to give it a bit of background, was that I was talking to a person at work about the recent Hunger Games film, Mocking Joe. Yep. And, you know, talking about what I, you know, what I liked, what I didn't like. And have you read the have you read the books? No, and I'm going to talk about. Oh, okay. I, I'd actually like to make this point cool. um, that the person I was talking to actually was a fan of the book, and they were talking about the film in relation to the book. Oh, so glad you brought this up. Um, one of my pet peeves in relation to the book. You know, the whole one of the things I like about the Citizens guy, he, he says quite clearly that the books do not matter. Yeah. That's not to say books are bad or awful, or the books, or the films are awful, but you shouldn't have to enjoy the book, the film, because you've read the book. Yeah. yeah. And that's sort of what her argument kind of was. Yeah. And then it, and I, and you know, I haven't read the Hunger Games book, so I'm not, I can't comment on you know the quality or lack of quality that Susan Collins um, brings to it. That's not, no, no, I've read it. I can't do that. Um, but her argument then descended into, yeah, but we all know, you know, but yeah, but let's face it, you know, the the books are always better than the films. And that actually got me thinking. That that's actually more of a cliche these days than a truism. Right. And that there are a lot more films. And people actually realise that are based on books. Yeah, because I think it's a it's a bit of a cliche, and it's not strictly speaking true. Yeah, mm. it's um, not true. Mm. Um, we wouldn't have many Academy Award winning films like um, all, all, all Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, for, for a start. So yeah, I'm going to mention my honorable mention first, which I think is Game of Thrones, the TV show. Cool. I struggle reading. This is not to say that George R. R. Martin does a terrible job. He's actually a good writer. I've read other stuff by him. He's a good writer. Yeah. My problem with it is that, as I've, that I've said in the past, you know, I just don't like the way it's structured. For novels, I really struggle with that, um, and I can't get past the page 150. Whereas <laughs> I finished four seasons of the TV show, and I love the the, the structure that works well for TV. I think. Yeah. So that's my honorable mention. Yeah. Number five, going from five to one. Number five, I've not actually read the book. But I'm going to talk about this anyway. Number five is Apocalypse Now. Right. Mm. Um, it's based on Hearts of Darkness. Heart of Sun and Hearts of Darkness. That's the documentary. Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Yep. Which we have read. Mm. Yes. And from what I believe, you know, it's a sort of it's an adventure story with a bit more darkness thrown in, perhaps, than you might expect from a, a standard adventure story. Mm. But I think Apocalypse. Watching Apocalypse Now. At no point do I sit there going, oh, this is just uh, a book on screen. Francis Ford Coppola's vision, you know, war, the insanity of war, particularly the Vietnam War, is so complete that you sit there immersed in this other thing that he's created outside of the source material that it originates from, yeah. if that makes sense. 
and I and yeah, well, it's, I mean, going back to Richard's, it, it transcends. Basically, yeah. isn't it's it's yeah, very yeah. loosely adapted, loosely, it, it a, loose is. Adapt, it is. a loose adaptation, um, to be sure. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, you know the the basic, you know, them all going down the river to find Kurtz. Yeah, is the, core, the, the core idea. That's yeah. the, the core idea is still there. But I can't, and the whole Kurtz has gone native thing. I, I yeah, can't. So, I can't yeah, imagine. Sure. I can't imagine Conrad coming up with any of the stuff that Coppola and John Milius come up with. Oh no, we well, don't. No, on film. No, I actually don't even like the book. Yeah. Did you like the book? We're, we've actually done it. We've, we've we, done we, both, we, so yeah. we we can confirm what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> we do. Um, we do for school. I, actually I, I did, wasn't a fan. I actually enjoyed the book. For I, I thought it was an interesting book, but I. For me, Apocalypse Now is the greatest war movie ever made. Yeah, it's a whole and different piece. So, yeah, absolutely right. That's mm. a good way of putting it. It is a whole different beast. And that's that's, that's my point, you know. It being, to transcend anything, it becoming a whole different beast, and in many yeah. respects, possibly even being greater than the yeah. source material yep, itself. Cool. Um, that's the number five. I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> number four is one that um, has been mentioned already, which is Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I... I, I do enjoy the book. I am saying that now, and yeah. yes, I read it after having seen the film. Um, there are a lot of things, though, that are at the core of the book. The film actually just communicates a lot better visually. Yeah. For instance, it gets rid of mercerism and the need for the religion. I understand why that's there in the book, and I understand its purpose, but the nature of reality and the needing to feel something real are so much more profound in the film, which leads into you know the finest moment in the film actually not being in the book, which is Roy Batty's death. Yeah. yeah. In one moment, you get what exactly why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and you begin to look at Deckard in a much different light because of it. And the book doesn't have that that emotional punch. No. Plus, also the raw vision of Ridley Scott and you know Sid uh, Sid Mead as well. Yeah. Um, that opening shot just really drawing you in. I know we've talked about Blade Runner, you know, a lot more. We devoted two episodes to it, but I just think it can't stressed enough in this instance that it's a film that actually takes the book that one step further yeah. um, number three is The Maltese Falcon wow the and I'm talking the 1941 version yeah. of the film the John Huston Humphrey Bogart the classic uh, we the just classic. everybody just assumes that's what that, that is the Maltese been, Falcon it, has been, it was yeah. from twice before I know but yeah but they're, 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 they're ones we don't talk about <laughs> yeah they're big raid yeah. slock um, and I'm saying this I, you know like, um, like Blade Runner I read The Maltese Falcon after having seen the film and I did enjoy it, but I wasn't as um, pressed by it the way that I was, you know, the film visualised it, you know, quite simply, but actually took it that one step further. doesn't really change the book at all, yeah, but John Huston's, John Huston's directing and Humphrey Bogart's presence actually um, take it a step up, whereas I can watch the film many times, but I don't feel like I've got, I, I have a need to go back to read the book. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying. I, but I, I'm actually, I do really quite like it, enjoy the book. I, I'm not, like I said, the book's yeah. the, the book is a fantastic book and it deserves its place. Yeah. That would have been my LA Confidential Folk Club, mm. Princess yeah. Bride sort um, of thing where they're both happening. But you know. Um, you know, like I said, I just think for me, you know, I can watch the film a lot more, but I don't need to feel, I don't really feel like I need to go back and read the book again yeah, and again. Makes sense. Yeah. Unlike, say, my next one, which is again another Bogart choice, which is The Big Sleep. I saw The Big Sleep first. Thought it was magnificent. Um, both versions, both the, the you know the original theatrical release and then the much later released extended cut. Oh, yeah. was there an extended cut? Yeah, mm. um, not, not so much extended as different. Different, as in it, the second cut is more um, reflective of the book. It right. actually takes a scene that's in the book in which Marlowe actually reveals you know more about what's actually been going on to make the mystery a lot clearer. 
right. which the original cut doesn't have because they wanted more and, scenes with Bacall and, and Bogart. Yeah, strangely which enough. Which is fair enough. Mm. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Bacall had been in a movie that had actually flopped mm. before this, and they were a little bit concerned about whether um, about her star power. And But they had to have and have not, where Bogart and Bacall basically light up the screen with their chemistry. Mm. So they went, yeah, we need more of that. So they had this, the film ready to go, and then they just went and reshot films with Bogart and Bacall being Bogart and Bacall, and inserted those in instead. Really? And that yeah. was that, and that was the cinematic release. There you go. Um, and then it wasn't until the nineties mm, that they actually released what was the original filmed version of the movie. Yeah. That actually makes substantially more sense than. But is it better though? Yeah, uh, I think I think it is, but yeah. it, it's better in that sometimes it's a better story. Like Donnie Darko is, ex- yeah, Donnie Darko. Yeah. Is no, but this actually this actually, this is more a case of yeah. The, the um one of the big criticisms about the original cut was um it makes no sense. Was uh, yeah, the, the, <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. people <laughs> actually couldn't work out really yeah. what was going on See, because yeah. they wanted more scenes yeah. of Bogart and Bacall. But um, for me, it hold the the big sleep, the film, and the book hold the same pl- hold the same place. They're both great stories. And I will go back and watch The Big Sleep numerous times, but I'll also go back and read The Big Sleep, the language that Chandler brings, nice. um, the character, the level of characterization. And because I loved The Big Sleep, I went, now Now I've got to read the rest of the Marlowe books, which I did. And then my last, my, my number one, has got to be Lord of the Rings. It's interesting, because Lord of the Rings is your favourite novel of all time. It's my favourite novel of all time. Um, loved it when I first started, when I read it when I was 16. Um, still enjoy it today. I read it before, you know, read it... I thought Wind of the Willows was your favourite novel. No. I thought Fifty Shades of Grey was your favourite novel. <laughs> um, Fifty Shades of Willows. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Luke. <laughs> a lot of the problems that I have with a lot of modern adaptations is that I just see... Even without having read the book, I kind of feel like I'm just seeing replication. What are we talking about here? Just in general. In general. In general. Oh, just in general, of, right. Yeah, I kind of feel like I see... Rep- <laughs> Sorry, you threw me. Stick with the program, man. Fifty Shades of Grey, I was like... Hunger, <laughs> to use Hunger Games as an example. Yeah. Well, I've not read the books. I'm not going to comment on the quality, but I kind of feel like with the films, I'm just getting things that might be on the page, not reinterpreted or rethought out to see how they work visually, just sort of dumped mm. on the screen. That makes well, sense. We, when Luke and I were actually discussing this before the show, um, you brought up a good example of uh, the Watchmen comic being one that you felt was just oh, okay. literally slapped on, right. you know, the yeah. comic slapped onto edit. the screen. But that's the point, that was the intent, though. Hmm. That's not I a kind negative, of thought, that's what they actually tried to do, and they succeeded. Yeah, but I kind of thought that, well, it's okay, I've got to be careful about this, because I'm a big fan of Sin City, which does actually just literally slap the that's comic right. on the yeah, screen. Yeah, that, that was my counter-argument, but um, I wasn't going to bring it up on the show. Um, but the thing that I the feel there is that, first of all, um, Sin City, Miller's always been more influenced by cinema anyway. So yeah. he has more cinema. He has more cinematic techniques in his comics. Yes. that mean that his, the that the Sin City comics are going to be a lot more uh, film friendly. His films also work is a lot more immediate. The film Watchmen didn't feel very immediate to me, mm. which is what film need kind of needs to be. Whereas the Sin City film does feel very immediate. You're caught up in the sweep of the action and you know the following the following the flow effectively. Whereas with Watchmen, I didn't feel like there, you need to do some reinterpretation. I agree with the, co- with the yeah, comic. I totally agree. Uh, I love I love the Watchmen film, mm. but for what it is, mm. it's not a very good film. And that's part of. But that, it is the characters come to life, and so therefore it's cool. And that's part of <laughs> that's part of my criticism of it. I kind of thought, no, you need to rethink 
a lot more about what's going on here to make this work. Yeah. Um, as a thing, I, that's not a knock against the graphic novel. I am a fan of the graphic. I'm a, I am a fan of the comic. Um, it's more. It's more knock really at Zack Snyder. <laughs> Um, which is fair enough there are so many other things we could attack Zach for though. Um, there are so many other things anyway getting back to you know yeah. my original thing which is Lord of the Rings which is sitting there watching the cinema I didn't feel like oh that's a great bit of the novel or wow that's, that's a you know they spoke that line of novel really well I went my god what a magnificent film What I, I feel like I have I've seen this story which I've read twice before I've read it twice before I've seen the film and I feel like I'm experiencing it for the first time wow. Wow. sitting in a that's... cinema just being gobsmacked that not even a case of, oh, yeah, no, they handled that well, was, oh, my God, I feel like I've got something quite extraordinary here. All the changes that he makes, that he makes, completely agreed with. Yeah. You know, the... Didn't need Tom Bombadil, this. Didn't need Tom Bombadil. Um, didn't, you know, and that's that's the other strength of it as well. Um, it's a lot more immediate. You can yeah. get your drawn into the story a lot faster. Frodo and the quest for the ring, uh, the quest to destroy the ring, sorry, are still kept um, as... The through line that you're always um, in, in, that you're always focused on. Those are my top five. You know, trying nice. to go go from some go from my favourites, but trying to diversify a bit where I can. But my point still stands is that there are some books that are much better than the films. There are some books that are the equal of the films, and there are some books which are nowhere near the level yeah. of the films. Like I said, it's not an anti-book. I love books. I love reading books. It's not an anti-film. I love film. I will continue to read books. I will continue to watch films. But I really don't like the argument anymore that the book is always better than the film. Yeah, there are too it's just, many examples. It's not true. Yeah. There are too many that I didn't mention. The, the Incredible Shrinking Man I mentioned all quiet in the Western Front earlier on. June, for instance, being an example of a film that completely gets it wrong <laughs> on two occasions. Yeah. Um, and then the English Patient, a book that I hate, a film that I hate, but the film is better than the book. Fair enough. That's yeah, an interesting way to finish it up. I hate them both. That's good. It was an excellent top five. Thank you very much. And uh, all all good picks. Except, yeah, except in- for Richards, maybe. What? Some interesting <laughs> ones there. <laughs> Hang on a sec. It's good. Cool, let's uh, finish up with our coming soon. In Australian cinemas, January 22nd, we get Wild, which is Reese Witherspoon walking through the desert. And, uh, sounds wild. Sounds incredibly boring. And <laughs> she's getting a lot of praise for it, you know, as in... Oscar were Oscar level. Well, I hope not because the trailer looks trash. <laughs> it looks like um, the. We, I mean, we did something that was quite recently here with um, Mia Wasikowski. Mm-hmm. I forget the title of it, but it was effectively, you know, girl walk through desert. Is it what was that? I don't know. It wasn't called, but that's what the plot was. She as good as rabbit, rabbit proof fence. Don't know. I haven't actually seen rabbit proof fence. Shame on you, Australia's own. Okay, there are <laughs> a lot of films that Australia makes that I don't see. That's that's a, that's why that's why we're in so much trouble anyway and uh, we also get um, Clint Eastwood's latest American Sniper with Bradley Cooper which does look very cool mm. it could and, be good uh, yeah, it, could, should, it could go either way I should check it out it could go either way yeah it's one of those isn't it it, it could go either way but um, you know Clint's a, a deft hand at directing and never overdoes mm-hmm. his film so I'm, I'm oh, definitely I don't know. one to chop Iajima or whatever that was from Iajima was fantastic movie way over the top but for the most part, his style, which we one is... <laughs> Look at his face! That's just, just that's, wrong! <laughs> that's the, difference, the difference between that one... I haven't actually seen Flags of Our Father or Iwo Jima, from Iwo Jima either, um, myself. But they're more bigger, broader, epic things, whereas what he actually does very well, Clint Eastwood, is small yeah, scale... small focus, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah the small focused ones. Which excellent. is exactly what Flags of Our Fathers had. Yeah, had it 
but it was then overtaken <laughs> by the epicness of the rubbish that was on it. Um, <laughs> That's what I'm saying. If it just had the focus... I must confess, like. American Style is not the one that I'm really looking forward to. There yeah. are two, two, three films, maybe now four, actually. Inherent Vices. Yep. Yeah. Joaquin Phoenix playing a drug dad private investigator. I know. It already um, looks alright. Private Eye. That, 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 it, it, you just they, reviewed it, it. Yeah, they reviewed it on the movie show. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. The Imitation Game. Yes. Which um, is already out. Yeah, it's already yeah. up. Um, is it? Yeah. yeah. Um, the Judge um, with Robert Downey Jr. and Robert Duvall. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's horrible. Is it? It's just boring. From start to finish. Two and a half hours of, yeah. oh my God, why is Robert Duvall in this trash? But hey, he might like it. Who knows? <laughs> Difference of opinions, man. <laughs> the, one that I'm really looking, <laughs> the one that I'm really looking forward to, though, as Richard has in fact already mentioned, Birdman. Yes. Yeah. That does yeah. look awesome. I haven't seen it. Um, I d- uh, it, it is it is out, but I've been wondering whether to see it or to hold off because in a couple of months the Astor is actually showing Batman as in the Michael Keaton Batman movie with Birdman as a double. The Astor's awesome. Also, that's uh, that's episode one twenty six. Great stuff. That's it from me, your host with the most, <laughs> <laughs> and the crew, Richo. The most what exactly? <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> you wish. <laughs> Look, this episode was okay, but the book is better. Hey, <laughs> uh, Kristen. I'm off to have my one shot. <laughs> Hang on a second. That's weird, man. <laughs> I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> <laughs> Hit me with your best shot. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Nerd Culture Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. You can run on our wall if you go to the Facebook page. Go to facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast. Tweet us at nerdculturecast. Skype us on Nerd Culture Podcast. If we don't answer, leave a message. We might even play it on the show. You can comment on any post on our website. www.nerdculturepodcast.com If you'd like to support the show... Use the Amazon affiliate widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. It doesn't cost you any extra, and a small percentage of the profit goes towards helping us to produce our show. We can see what you buy, but not who you are, so your privacy is assured. Check out our videos at ncptv.net, or search for NCPTV on YouTube, because we also have a YouTube channel. Don't forget, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Wondering where you can hear more of Bo? Go to ecnradio.com. Bo and David also have another podcast called Film Flames. More info at www.filmflames.com. You can find all of our podcasts and more at undercastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more episodes. <laughs>